Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you gotta be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a Startup Grind. Startup Grind is supported by Soylent, the galaxy's easiest meal. Soylent is a nutritionally complete, ready-to-drink meal in a bottle. A simple solution to the substantial amount of time and money most people spend maintaining healthy diets. The latest formula, Soylent 2.0, offers a pleasantly subtle flavor, a smooth texture, and a lasting fullness. Soylent began as a crowd-funded startup. After reaching fundraising goals within just two hours of the campaign's launch, Soylent attracted the attention of venture capitalists, allowing the company to scale to the multi-million dollar market leader it is today. Having been there themselves, Soylent supports the entrepreneurial spirit in everyone. Learn more and subscribe at Soylent.com. Use the promo code StartupGrind for 10% off your first subscription. That's Soylent.com, promo code StartupGrind. Hey there and welcome to Monday's episode of the Startup Grind Podcast. Today we have a great chat between our Washington, D.C. chapter director, Brian Park, and Vox Media founder and CEO, Jim Bankoff. Jim is CEO and chairman of Vox Media, a global internet media company that currently has three major editorial brands, SB Nation, The Verge, and Polygon, a video gaming site. SB Nation, its sports brand, boasts over 30 million users per month across 300 individually branded fan-centric sports communities, each covering a specific professional or college team, league, or sport. In November 2011, Vox Media launched The Verge, which has quickly established itself as a category leader and the fastest-growing site that covers technology. In October 2013, Vox launched Polygon, a site dedicated to news and communities for fans of gaming, anchored by an all-star roster of writers. All Vox Media sites are built upon its world-class proprietary publishing platform. As the former Executive Vice President of Programming and Products at AOL, Bankoff has developed and led many notable websites including AOL.com, MapQuest, MoviePhone, AOL Music, Netscape, and AOL Instant Messenger. He is also known for establishing websites TMZ, FanHouse, Blogging, Stocks, and Engadget. The company enjoys support from leading investors including Excel Partners, Comcast Interactive Capital, and Coastal Ventures. He is also a senior advisor for Providence Equity Partners. Let's listen in to Jim Bankoff, interviewed by Brian Park in Washington, D.C. So, usually we, we usually like to start our uh, fireside chat um, on a personal note. So, if you can talk about where you grew up, um, Sure. What did your parents do? Where did you get? Where did you? Where did you graduate? Where did you get your MBA? It's probably sure. important too. Yeah, it's a good question. No one's ever asked me that in one of these discussions. So it's 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 smart though because my I'm thinking about it, my dad um, is an entrepreneur. Obviously, well before the internet, but um, he was into jewelry. He still is, uh, thankfully, alive and in the jewelry business. And um, and uh, you know, really taught me by example everything. I think I needed to know about this, you know, grinding it out and uh, and being an entrepreneur, and both like you know the positive and the negative that comes along with that. Um, so I grew up mainly in New York and New Jersey, moved around a little bit, and then um, uh, attended undergrad at Emory University, got my MBA at Wharton, and then uh, you know had a few different internships and like early stage jobs. In fact, my, one of my first my first full time job was like a block from here. Uh, working um, in, 
in, for a lobbying communication firm. Um, and then I decided I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. That's when I went back to business school and then joined AOL while I was in business school. Great. Actually, you know, you're the uh, second guest that actually graduated from Warren. We had Nigel Morris of oh, Capital One. Excellent. Well, yeah. hopefully I'll have his level of success too. But he liked Philly though. <laughs> Did you like Philly? I love Philly. Really? Philly is awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm not living there, but it, it was a great two years and, uh, and, you know, had a lot of fun. Philly has a lot of flavor, a lot of great neighborhoods, a lot of great food, that kind of stuff. So nice. it was fun. Cool. So you like Philly better than DC or? I don't want to go that far. <laughs> okay. Philly Just checking. Just checking. Philly, We're doing Philly a check here. Philly has its charms. You okay. Know? Well, Geno's. DC, Gino's, DC really is good. a little more like global and international and like has, you know, it, its own things going for it, but um, but Philly, Philly's got spunk. <laughs> got Rocky. All right. Um, so, so but before we go into the Vox Media story, um, I wanted to get right into, um, you know, when you when you were president of Netscape AOL, um, but kind of after even after that, uh, when you were EVP, you of of AOL, um, you had developed, acquired, and grew world-class consumer web um, sites such as AIM, Movie Phone, TMZ. TMZ, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, AOL Music, User Plane, and Gadget. So if you can kind of give us like the lessons learned you learned uh, from those companies and how did it give you a leg up uh, in running Vox Media to become a world-class property? Well, sure. You know, I, I have a lot of great people who work with me now and I joke around like I, I'm actually, I have one of the less diverse careers out of like all the great people I work with and that I've always, you know, other than that quick stint that I mentioned uh, here, I've always been doing online content for my, my whole career and that's changed a lot because I'm obviously, you know, I think I've been doing online content as long as there has been online content. So it's changed but I've always been doing that one thing and, um, you know, when I first joined AOL, I was never on the, on the, ISP side of the business. So I never shipped out a disk. And those of you who are old enough to remember, like that was AOL's primary business. I was always the guy who was trying to find things for people to do once they got online. And in the beginning, there wasn't even a broader internet. So we would finance companies, a lot of them local, like the Motley Fool, which is still going really strong. Someone else that you can invite on. Oh, yes, I was going to say, yeah. yeah. Because uh, they have a great business, big building out in Alexandria. But when they were first getting started, there was no web, and so they had to like do a deal with AOL to get audience, and that's how they started up. So I started off my career companies like that and companies like iVillage, and then as that grew, you know, fast forward to 2004 when you know I was uh, I was on the sidelines saying, guys, this ISP business, let's face it, it's going away, <laughs> uh, and if you want to transition AOL, we have to make it into a media company, and eventually everyone kind of understood that, but it was some sense is too little too late. AOL didn't have a technology platform. It wasn't even publishing in HTML. We had this system called Rain Man, which for those of you who are old enough to remember, these little like form-driven objects that were on the computer screen. So we didn't have an open web standard. We didn't have any real claim to be a media company. And so a lot of the things that you mentioned were born out of necessity to try to jumpstart our media business. So we would acquire companies, that's how we acquired UserPlane, we acquired um, Weblogs Inc, which had brands like Engadget. We started things like TMZ, we acquired more you things. You started TMZ? I, I, I co-founded it with some partners out at Warner Brothers. And then um, one of my themes for tonight is going to be just how important talent is. And we 
while we hatched the idea, the first thing we did was hire some great people who actually made it what it was. So I'm, you know, even though even though we hatched it, I'm I always give credit to um, guys like um, Harvey Levin, who you might know from the TV show, who's you know, he's really the creative force behind it and deserves the credit. But yeah, we started it up and, uh, you know, and it blew up. And, you know, I translate, you know, some of those themes that I learned there are certainly extraordinarily relevant for what we're doing today at Vox Media. Um, so that's actually quite interesting that you talk about Web, Weblog Inc. Because I wanted to talk about how you were able to reconcile the differences in uh, company culture. Um, so there, have you seen that Wall Street Journal article about um, web, web vlog with uh, Jason Calacanis, right? So, I probably so, have. I think I've seen everything. Okay, so, so um, all, all Things D, they had mentioned that um, the, the art of the acquisition, so, and then, you know, obviously, you're the, the big M&A guru, and basically the, the title of this article said, Leave It Alone, uh -huh. and you were known to leave your acquiries alone, sort of giving them a long leash. And so, and, and so in your experience, have you noticed, especially when an acquiry, acquiry goes into the, you know, the big, bigger company, have you noticed that the acquiry changes the acquirer's DNA? Has that, you know, has that ever happened? Uh, it, it happens, well, you know, I certainly, they, they certainly attempt to change the DNA. I don't, I don't know if you, if you can fully, um, but you know there are examples of it having happening successfully. Um, for instance, you know probably everyone who lives in this area is very familiar with Ted Leonsis, who's a good friend of mine. He was my boss and mentor, and, um, and still is a very close friend. Um, he's kind of synonymous with building up AOL. I mean, he's synonymous with AOL, right, in this area certainly, and now he's synonymous with his sports teams and other ventures. But um, his company was acquired by AOL, and you know Steve Case acquired Ted's company, which was called Redgate. And you know a few years later, they were joking around how actually Little Redgate wound up acquiring AOL because that was a an instance of where the smaller acquired company influenced the DNA of the larger company. And so you know that will probably go down as one of the as one of the most successful small mergers of you know, of tech history probably in that a smaller company was able to use the executive talent and the know-how to help grow the bigger company. And, you know, so that's an example of where, you know, the DNA could be shifted. Um, having said that, there are far more examples of where it falls apart and where, you know, it either falls apart via, you know, hubris or misunderstanding or whatever. Um, and so I think the art is really understanding why you're acquiring a company, having very clear expectations with the entrepreneurs and with the teams going into it. And there could be different things. Sometimes it is right just to leave it alone, but other times you're buying it because you want them to have a positive influence on you. And if you leave them too far separated, that influence isn't gonna happen. So you have to really understand why you're in it and really be upfront uh, and have really strong conversations and get both sides excited about it. So that's a really good answer, but uh, so what is your opinion about the Yahoo acquisition of Tumblr? Tumblr, um, you know, my opinion is—I'll start off by saying no more informed than any of yours. Um, you know, I, I read the same things that you read probably, and those of you who even care about it. And um, but it's my you know, phone. Sorry. I like that ringtone, by the way. <laughs> I might call you, Brian, just so I can hear some Aerosmith. 
Um, Sorry about that. So, yeah, oh yeah, Web yeah. Uh, Sorry, Tumblr. yeah. Tumblr, um, yes. I, I think, uh, you know, I think it's a great acquisition, to be honest. And, um, you know, if you're Yahoo and you're trying to shake up your business, I, I think Marissa Mayer is proving herself to be a great CEO and she's making some bold and aggressive moves. They have plenty of cash on their balance sheet to take a risk like this. They want an asset that has scale. It might not have the revenue scale, but it certainly has the user scale. Um, and they're looking for a platform. So I think, you know, it's a risk. It's not, it, you know, it's, it's a roll of the dice, but I think it's a, it's a reasonably um, measured one and it's probably less risky than not doing anything. Yeah, I mean, so uh, the thing is that I have, one of the struggles I have with an acquisition like that is, is really brand integrity. So how does Yahoo maintain the brand integrity of Tumblr without compromising their own brand? So, Yeah, as I understand it, this was a case where they're not going to change the brand. You know, there might be a little, like, thing on the bottom that, for legal reasons, but beyond that, they're not going to change too much. And I think the integration points are going to be ones that hopefully will be invisible to the consumer, but will still be helpful for Yahoo's business. So specifically, how do they leverage the data that's coming off of Tumblr um, to create uh, more targeted ad networks? How do, they, um, how do they sell the advertising in a more powerful way? That you know, will have some sort of impact on the consumer, but Tumblr was gonna have to start you know, monetizing their asset at some point anyway and maybe Yahoo can do it in a more elegant and more powerful way. So, you know, there certainly will be changes, but I think hopefully those changes won't interfere with the core experience and the reason why people love it so much to begin with. Okay, cool, good answer. Um, so as a former, former EVP of AOL, ooh. okay, ooh, okay. Um, and you were the I'm now, EVP. A, I'm now a CEO. I know, I know you're CEO. So right? are you guys. That's right, man. Um, we're all so, CEOs. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so you were EVP of programming and products, and I used to work for AOL, and you were like my boss's 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 boss. I mean, seriously. So I'm so glad I'm talking to you yeah. now, That's 10 years later. Um, so my question to you is that, because I knew that there were, I mean, you have all these web properties. You got AOL.com, you got MapQuest, MapQuest, you got... Movie phone, AOL Music, you know Netscape, AOL Instant Messenger, TMZ, Fan, fan House, blogging stocks, and Gadget. So my question to you is, you know, it's kind of like, what was your favorite um, web property? I mean, I know it's kind of yeah. like asking a father yeah, who's your favorite it. child, but you know, what was your favorite? I web probably property? could answer this one because sure. I mean they're all great, but you know the one that I, um, the ones that I took most personal pride in were the ones that I had a hand in building. Um, and, you know, and when you put it that way, it's like I'm, I'm proud of, you know, managing a great team at, at AOL, but um, when you have such a large organization, your responsibilities are such that you can't be as hands-on with the products as you want to be. You know, like I missed that. Um, and, you know, it was, a, it was a blessing to have such a great job. And, and experience so much, but one of the frustrations of the job is like, you have responsibilities as a leader and those responsibilities as a leader are to empower other people and not to like tinker in designing a product or something like that. And that's, you know, that's people who work with you, it's their job. Um, and so, you know, first of all, that's one of the great things about managing a startup is like, even though you might not have some of the perks of like, running a big company, you 
you know, you get that thrill of where your every decision has an impact. And, you know, don't lose sight of that as you strive to be bigger um, because it's, you know, it's, it's great. And, like, hopefully you'll find a way to maintain that without being a micromanager and find a way to empower people in the same way that you're currently empowered. That's one of the big lessons. But, you know, to answer your question, the ones that I worked on directly, like TMC, for instance, where I was, like, you know, involved in the creation and the growth of it. Um, there were other ones, too, like, you know, Fan House, the, the AOL sports venture, um, you know, where we had a, a great guy named Jamie Mottram who really, um, he, who really, he's now at USA Today, but he, you know, that was really his, his brainchild along with a bunch of other people, but at least I was a little closer to that, whereas, you know, the acquisitions were great, too, and we did some turnarounds on them and some other things, but um, I always personally liked the ones where I had a hand in building them. Okay, so um, we're going to go straight to the Vox Media story. That's why everyone's here. Um, so kind of step us I thought through. Was, I thought they were here for the pizza. Right? For the pizza, yeah. No, actually, they're here for the water. So, <laughs> um, so step us through the, uh, the story of how Vox Media started. Um, how did it come to be? Who were the original founders? Um, did they, when did they decide to bring, you, bring a seasoned CEO and, uh, and replace themselves? So let's talk about that. So Vox Media started as SB Nation, and, and you did a good job of introing us, but you know, SB Nation, uh, Vox has now three consumer verticals, one in sports with SB Nation, one in tech culture with The Verge, and one in games with Polygon. And, um, but we started out as SB Nation, and um, the founders were, the, the main founder is a guy who I still uh, work with named Tyler Blazinski. He's our editorial director on our sports side. Um, he and a, a partner slash friend of his, uh, Marcos Muslitsis, um, and then a third guy who's local here, Jerome Armstrong, got together. Marcos and Jerome basically financed um, uh, Tyler, made it possible for him to quit his day job and work on this thing. Um, they then brought in some smart technologists on a consulting basis, and the, the main guy, uh, a bunch of them are still with our company. The main guy is a guy named Trey Brundrett, who's still our chief product officer, and they got going on this. Um, they knew of my reputation from AOL where I was doing some similar things with Weblogs Inc. I left AOL at the end of 2006. I was working for a private equity firm, but I was really interested in startups. You know, to me, like one of the great things about startups now, when I got out of business school, everyone's aspiration was to like go work for a big company and run a big company someday. Now like people getting out of school, like their aspiration is to work for something small. And so, you know, you, you know, so, you know, the tide was changing. I wanted to work for something smaller. These guys and I got to know one another. Um, they, they did, you know, first I spent a long time, like, you know, we had a courtship <laughs> for a long time where I was helping them informally and then I was helping them a little more formally, and then they asked me to join their board, and then they asked me to help them raise money. And once we raised the money, um, they and the, the first VC that backed us asked me to run the company. And by that point, I had gotten to know the company so well, I, you know, I, I, I just fell in love with it. Actually, and I so to I want to get some clarification on this. So, like, were they in kind of like the seed Seed phase. That's so, right. So they, they, they had a full-time job, and then you were working for AOL. And I had left AOL by that point, but I was I was consulting for this private equity firm. Oh, right, and, right. And they and they you know they actually brought me in for advice, but then they asked me to seed. And <laughs> I, I believe I, I I didn't you know I don't have the kind of money where I can like make a lot of these personal investments, but I believed in them so much that um, 
I put a little of my own money into it, and um, that money quickly evaporated, <laughs> which really motivated me to help them raise money. Uh, because my wife was like, what happened to that investment that we made? Because, you know, it's her money too. And, uh, and uh, I, I, had a, I had to account for that money. Uh, and I had to wind up uh, running the company so I could get that money back. But uh, it's all worked out. <laughs> it's funny how you had a co-CEO like, all of a sudden, right? I mean, like, <laughs> right. Well, that, that my wife tells me, me, she tells that to me all the time. She's at least she, my venture capital. Exactly, right? exactly. So that's cool. Um, so... So I wanted to talk about, um, because you, you've had experience in this whole M&A sphere, and my question to you is, so there's a lot of founders here. So how many founders do we have here of startups? Okay, so that's probably 70% of the room. Um, when we get to seed, seed, the seed stage, you know, obviously you know, you're trying to find a product market, market fit. You go to Series A, you're trying to scale the company. Uh, then, you know, because scaling, entails a lot of things, uh, meaning, hey, including you're not the right person to run this company now. When do you think that, what are some of the signs of a founder that I should say, hey, I need to step down and bring in a seasoned CEO uh, to run this startup? What are, what are some of the signs that you've seen? Um, you know, in our case, Tyler, who I mentioned, was our founder. and. Um, you know, he, like, he's such a great guy and, and so, you know, both self-aware and so smart. Um, and I think we're like a case study for bringing in, you know, me from the outside. Now, we were, you know, at that point, we were only like seed. So it wasn't like we were well down the road and a new CEO came in. But still, you know, it was a transition. And I think for his part, what I know he said about me is that I understood the vision that he had and I could follow through on it and maybe do it on a on a level that he had not yet experienced. You know, I can bring something to the table to complement him and something to drive his business forward more. And, you know, there's not one easy answer to your question. I think, you know, maybe generally speaking, though, it'd be like where you feel as though your skills, talent, abilities um, have hit a limit on where they need to be in order to take your pride and joy to the next level. And that's a very difficult um, thing to grapple with because it is yours. It came you know, from your mind and your sweat. And to bring someone in to assist you to get to the next level is a, is a very difficult thing. And you have to choose wisely. And then you have to find that right balance between empowering the person but also sticking with them to make sure that your you know, vision is, is realized. Um, even if that means some pivoting and adapting of that vision along the way. Yeah, I mean, so one of the examples that comes to mind is obviously, uh, well, Tumblr, because I've met David Karp a couple of times, and when he had brought in the CEO, I think it was Donahue, Donahue uh, anyway, right. uh, or Mahoney, yeah. Mahoney. Yeah. Um, so he, I mean, he's like this 50-year-old guy running Tumblr, which is prim primarily, you know, the, the the 20s, you know, yeah. folks that are like in high school and in their 20s. And so like I was, when, when he had made that decision to step down and, and bring in a seasoned CEO, it, it had a lot of people scratching their heads. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, the ver reverse is, you know, the most famous one not, you know, is Mark not stepping down, but bringing in Cheryl to help him with Facebook. And, you know, that's another way of doing it where, you know, if you can find a solid partner, um, 
to compliment you, you can do it that way too. You know, sometimes that's possible, sometimes it's not. Um, but you know, I think you know, in the case, in both of those cases, um, the idea was one person will focus on the product. You know, in both in David's case and in Mark's case, they're product visionaries. They wanted to stay close to the product. They didn't want to bother uh, only to the with with important things like the business model and, and th at, at the time at least, um, and scaling an organization, HR, finance, investor relations, all those kind of things that you know take up time during the day and are critical, of course. So they had to find partners to help them, and you know, it's smart. You know, and, and everyone needs partners, whether or not you're a founder. You, you know, I, I have uh, one of your former bosses, a boss is a boss, is a guy named Marty Mo is now our COO, and he helps me a lot. Trey Brundrett's our chief product officer, and so, you know, the key thing is, um, a lot of times people start their own businesses because they want to see things done their own way. That's critical. That's what you know, vision is of a passion of a founder is what gets the company off the ground and what guides it forward for, you know, for its life. Um, but don't confuse that with having to do it all yourself or thinking that you can do it all yourself as you scale because that, that takes it from, you know, visionary into uh, megalomania and uh, you have to like, you know, where one, know where one ends and the other begins and just, you know, be, be careful and if you really love your creation, you know, treat it right and, and get it the care that it needs, that it deserves. Great. Um, Vox Media is the fastest growing publisher company according to Comscore. 60 million monthly uniques. It's a more yeah. now? Six, 60 million Google Analytics. And I, you know, I think okay. Comscore is at like 20 or something. 20. No, we had uh, Dr. Majid as our guest. Oh, did you? Comscore. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll do it. Oh, you do? Okay. Some other time. <laughs> um, so talk about the uh, so the three web properties you're able to become one of the fastest growing properties uh, for with well with really two of them right Not, uh, SB Nation and um, The Verge but Polygon is now the fastest growing video game property it's oh. only six months old uh, okay. we had a killer week last week with E3 um, games coverage and you know if any of you care at all about video games or game culture it's like it's an awesome site it's beautifully designed too and it's just shooting up the chart. So anyway, all three. Okay, well, that's not corrected. Okay, great. Huge. So tell us, let's get right to the bottom. Like, where are the techniques where you get, how you gain all this traction, you know, so without, you know, spilling the beans. <laughs> A quick break from Jim Bankoff for some recent startup headlines. Apple has announced that iTunes Radio will move behind a $10 per month Apple Music paywall on January 28th. The ad-supported streaming service launched in 2013. Beats 1 will become Apple's only free music service when the change occurs. Wikipedia hopes to raise $100 million over the next 10 years to secure its financial future. As the site turns 15 years old, the operator company Wikimedia looks to expand into mobile and developing markets. A recent study found that 45% of its content came from five countries, the UK, US, France, Germany, and Italy. The company faces challenges including content length and visual presentation. Amazon has updated its Alexa software with the ability to narrate Kindle books through its Echo device. The software keeps track of books in response to commands including pause, go forward, and resume reading. Amazon also announced Echo compatibility with Vivint home security systems. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, I'm happy, give us a little I'm bit of like secret like sauce fully, here. You know, I'm happy to be fully transparent. I mean, you know, I, I will say we started this up, you know, now five years ago, and and you know, a lot of the, a lot of the things that made us able to scale are now like 
very well known. And so, you know, they're not secrets. In fact, they're obvious. Um, things like, you know, but if you think about it, starting a media brand from scratch five years ago was a hard thing to do. And, you know, 10 years ago was impossible to do. You think about the media landscape, it was dominated by local market monopolies or national monopolies that could afford a heavy fixed infrastructure cost, whether it's a printing press, like across the street, or whether it was a radio tower or a TV tower or you know some other like big cost investment to enable you to distribute trucks, whatever, uh, and then you know you had to invest a lot in marketing that new brand so that someone would have heard of it. Um, the internet came along and leveled the playing field. That was the good part and the bad part. It leveled the playing field such that any of us could compete, uh, and it leveled the playing field such that any of us could compete. So we have. A lot of um, competition now, and it makes it tougher. Like we were starting off at a part where it was a little bit easier to break through, and we can use new avenues like social distribution, or even search engine optimization, or even um, you know business development partnerships um, and grassroots um, affiliations to like grow our brands. Um, but really, what it you know what it boiled down to was the fact that we made a product that people loved in the in the case of the sports sites, you know, we went after a passionate fan. We had a strategy that the bigger guys weren't doing. That's another obvious but important piece of advice is that, you know, copycat strategies um, aren't gonna cut it, in my opinion, for entrepreneurs. And I'm not saying that like in a higher mighty way, just in a kind of obvious way that if a bigger per a bigger company is doing something already why would a smaller company be successful in like doing the same strategy as them? So in our case, in sports, for example, there were a lot of national players out there, ESPN, CBS Sports, Sports Illustrated, et cetera, that were doing just fine. And instead of just trying to go after them in the national space, we looked around and said, well, no one's really doing teams well. Um, the teams themselves had websites, but the teams couldn't write critically about their websites. They couldn't have honest dialogue, so fans wanted more, you know, fans didn't want to just go to a place to read the propaganda or to buy a ticket, they wanted a place where they could really talk about their team and build culture around their team. And that's how we got started, offering something different on that level. We then, um, we had built up technology to support that. One of the, another way that we got a leg up was building our own proprietary technology platform. We call it Chorus. Um, it started off as a CMS, but really evolved into um, a modern media platform, much in the same way that Tumblr or WordPress are platforms. Ours is a platform like that too. Probably, you know, even more powerful than WordPress. It's just we use it for our own uh, internal uses to build media brands. And once sports really grew up, we realized that we had a lot of leverage in this technology platform asset. And that's when we determined, hey, we can do more than just sports. That's when we got into The Verge. That's when we got into um, Polygon. But the point is that, you know, one, find something that no one else is doing. Two, use the, the obvious, you know, ways to build a company on the web that I think are, you know, everyone knows these days. And then three, when you do start to get a little bit of traction, understand what your real assets are and how you can leverage them. We had a lot of good conversations internally. Are we a sports company or are we a modern publishing company? And ultimately the answer for us was we were a modern publishing company that publishes sports and can publish other things. And you know, as your company grows, you know, some, sometimes people call it pivoting or whatever, but I, you know, that's sometimes dismissive. That's a way of saying I failed and I'm trying something new. 
oftentimes like really understanding, you know, even though it's not what you intended, you have something special going on, really understanding what that is and being able to invest in that also helps. Okay, great. So that, so we had talked about traction. Now, now with all this traction, let's talk about the monetization um, aspect of this and this whole new media. Um, do you think that the best days for publishers are behind them or do you think they're ahead of them? Uh, in terms of monetization, obviously. Uh, I think for some publishers, they're behind, and some publishers, they're ahead. And you know, the difference is, um, are, you know, are you embracing all these things about digital, and can you get out of your way and execute against them? And say that last part, because I think we're at a stage now where, you know, I, I honestly think five, ten years ago, there were a lot of like just big, dumb media companies out there that weren't embracing digital, didn't understand what it meant. We're beyond that now. It's like they get the joke, and like they're you know they're not stupid, and you can't like make fun of them anymore. It's just that they are still bogged down in cultures and business model legacies that are hard to escape, um, and maybe for very legitimate reasons. Like they make a lot of money from them, and they have shareholders that they have to satisfy, and so they can't just write off something that makes a lot of money on the speculative promise of something that isn't going to make a lot of money for them necessarily. Um, and so there's good reasons why they can't embrace it. And I think, unfortunately, for publishers like that, they're kind of caught in this slow death spiral that might accelerate depending on what form of media it is. You know, newspapers, magazines, faster than TV networks. But it's all kind of going in that direction. Um, there's a new breed of publishers. You know, I think we're amongst them that um, are you know doing things in a thoroughly modern way, using technology, finding great web talent, um, and trying to do things in a high quality way. And you know, not void. I think you know we're onto something. We're not alone. And I think there will be a lot of publishers and a lot of platforms that prosper. Okay. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but we're right across from the Washington Post, right? I am. Okay, yeah. So. I hope they can't hear me. <laughs> yeah, I was serious. Well, I was, well, I was like, not that mic too. Loud. <laughs> I, I, I have a lot of respect for the Washington. Who can't? You know, they, they, you know, obviously have a storied history. But to this day, they're, you know, they're a critical journalistic entity. And so, um, I am cheering for them. Um, it's just, as I said, it's it's hard. And and I know a lot of the people who work across the street, and I have utmost respect for them. They're smart people. They might not. They might even, you know, know more than. I do, or more than anyone on our team does, but as I said, it's still hard to do anything about it because you're kind of trapped in this business model and cultural paradigm that, uh, for very good structural reasons, is difficult to bust out of. Um, okay, so um, I want to now talk about, okay, so along with this monetization in new media, because I, I eventually, I think this would be a good segue to your new product from Vox. And I'll let you talk about it more. But before we answer, before we get there, um, you had I had heard you s speak at um, TechCrunch Disrupt, and also at GigaOM, and uh, it was it really struck me when you had talked about um, just advertisement. So at the top of the funnel of creative advertisement, and you had you had made this illustration that like, here you have this 250 billion dollar industry worldwide, all inclusive advertisement uh, advertisement. And you said that 60 to 65% is all brand building. Yeah. So that's interesting. And then, then, you, then you had mentioned that the internet, which is kind of like on the bottom of the funnel, um, $25 billion, 80% goes to direct response. response yeah, that's a good note. 
took yeah, I know. I, I just, I just, I just, and, and I just YouTube. You know, for those it, of you who it. are, you know, I know there's a variety of different businesses, but like for those of you who aren't familiar with the advertising business, what that means is the internet is awesome for selling us stuff. Like, you know, when you're in the market to buy something, you type it into Google, you find the ad word. That's great. I mean, that's what made the internet what it is. Or when you're surfing on a website and one of those ads, like they know that you've been shopping at. Expedia, and so you'll get the Expedia ad on whatever site you're on. Again, like they know you're in market for something, they want to sell it to you right there. But well before you can sell something, someone, you have to build awareness of the thing, and you have to create a brand perception of the thing. Like you know, before before you're in the market to buy a car, or even a soft drink, or even a hamburger, you know, marketers do their job of telling you stories and and creating awareness for their products and creating. Perception, you know, it's just a hamburger. Yet we view different hamburgers in, with different traits because of the marketing behind them. And so, the web has not really focused on that. In, in marketing speak, it's the top of the funnel. Um, the web has done really well at the bottom of the funnel. But most marketing in the real world, outside of the internet, is spent on creating brand awareness. And one of the things we're trying to do is appeal to those types of marketers that are looking to do that on the web. And I go you know, further just to say that as people, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your worldview, stop reading magazines and newspapers and as their broadcast viewing habits are fragmented, marketers have a real problem. I often say you know, the marketers don't do us any favors when they spend money with us. They're, they have a problem to solve because it's harder for them to create this brand awareness when we as consumers are no longer spending time with these same media properties that we used to, and we're shifting all of our time to the web, they have to figure out solutions on the web that are not just Google AdWords and not just low value ad networks, but that are actually you know, engaging um, in, in strong brand building tactics. So that's what we're trying to help them with. Okay, so let's, let's talk about Vox Creative, because oh. that's exactly what it is. It's I mean, segue, a good segue, Brian. right. I mean, how I understand Vox Creative is it's really ultimately brands connecting with audience in meaningful ways. And so um, I know you don't believe in sponsor posts. <laughs> yeah, we, well, we no, don't, no. Well, what we don't believe in is like tricking consumers right. into thinking that they're reading uh, you know, something that our writers uh, wrote involuntarily. Like that, you know, we don't believe in deceiving people. But, we, but what we do believe in is that brands have a story to tell um, and we have Vox Creative is a unit that we established to help them tell those stories. Um, and if you think about it, if you're a marketer, um, let's say you are, you know, you make cereal or something like that. You, you know, you want to tell a story about that cereal. Our cereal is awesome, and <laughs> athletes love to eat our cereal because it makes them strong and um, and good looking and. Uh, you know, and so historically, you would have done that on television. Well, now as media fragments, you need to tell stories where to the audience that is now on digital. Yet, that's a hard thing to do. And you know, you have an agency, and and the agency has certain things that they do well. But one of the things that we have spent a lot of time and and capital on is figuring out how to tell stories to digital audiences. You know, we do it for our content brands. Marketers do it. As well, you know, we communicate with an audience. As the Verge communicates with an audience every day, and if you're a marketer, increasingly you want to communicate with a digital audience every day. And so we thought to ourselves, why not make available the same 
tools and create a process that we use internally and make that available for marketers who are looking to do the exact same thing. And those tools include our video studio, where we can make broadcast quality video at a fraction of the cost. Those tools include our technology platform, Chorus, that enables you to have analytics and metrics and publishing mechanisms and all sorts of you know, newsroom management. Um, and, those, you know, and those tools include other things too, like the ability to kind of you know, work with social media and other things. So all those capabilities, all those um, platforms that we have are now available to marketers as well. And that's what Vox Creative is. Okay, because like when I heard you explain that before, I was still somewhat confused. So I actually yeah. wrote an actual example. So I mean, you you, you, you use a serial example, but let's let's do something more a little pertinent sure. here. Um, you know, Under Armour. Under Armour is here in Baltimore, Baltimore and sure. probably somebody, or even the, the CMO of uh, the Washington Capitals. Right? Yeah, which actually he is here. But um, anyways, uh, so if I wanted to sell tickets, I want to sell more tickets. How would I use Vox Creative? If yeah, well, I'm watch, watch you know, so apples. again, you know, that's a good, and that, that particular, the particular way you phrase that, like, how do I sell more tickets? You know, if your goal is to sell more tickets tonight, where are you, CMO? I, uh, <laughs> I, I wanted, um, you know, I, I would say there are more effective direct response techniques for doing that. You know, that's where, you know, I'd say, um, you know, there are flash sales, you know, go work with Groupon or Living Social to like sell your tickets tonight because that's what they specialize in. If I want to, you know, have a campaign though for the Washington Capitals that gets more people in DC or even around the country or the world excited about the Washington Capitals brand and builds a sense of excitement about the team upcoming, maybe with the goal to be to sell more season tickets and sell more merchandise and get prime the pump for all sorts of sales. Um, then I would work with Vox Media to say, hey, let's create a campaign. Maybe it's a video-based campaign. Maybe it's a whole website campaign that talks about the excitement uh, and the passion uh, around the Washington Capitals and the Washington Capitals fans. It really gives people a taste of, of everything that's going on and why you want to be a part of it and leaves that impression in your mind that you need to be part of it such that when you do hit them up with a buy now thing on Groupon or on you know an AdWords or wherever it is, you've left them with that impression like, wow, I gotta go buy that ticket because this is an exciting team. This is a movement that I wanna be part of. Well, because you mentioned like videos, like you know studios. I mean, does that also include? It does. Like, let's cut a video. Let's create a website. Let's create an interactive series. Let's create um, an interactive poll. Let's do you know, a fan meetup, you know, it could be, it could be a whole bunch of things on online and offline that combine the two. You know, a, a relevant, you know, a real life example that we worked on is with Ford. Um, and, you know, we're not, Ford spends uh, you know, probably over a billion dollars getting people who are in market to buy Ford cars. That's critical for them to do. They, they work with AutoTrader, they work, you know, with their dealers, um, and they do that very well. But well before they do that, they have to create a image of Ford and one of the things that we could help them with is making Ford into uh, have you know Ford has a lot of great technology products and you don't often think of Ford as a technology company but they have sync and they have a lot of eco things that are you know helping the cars get better fuel economy and less emissions and all that stuff and they no one really knew that and they wanted to get in front of a tech savvy audience to really tell their technology story 
we have The Verge, and even our sports properties, for that matter, have a really tech-savvy audience that they were looking to attract. So we not only put the messages in front of those audiences and measured it, but we also um, helped them create series that talked about these virtues. And then we also worked with them. They were our lead sponsor at CES. And how often do you think about a car company sponsoring a technology conference? But once you start to think about that, you think to yourself, oh, wait a second, Ford is sponsoring a technology coverage. Ford must be a technology company. And you, know, and, and you might not think that immediately, but over time, you build that impression. And I think companies that you know, embrace digital branding like that are smart for that reason. Um, I'd like to switch gears here a little bit and talk about um, mobile. So the mobile strategy. Um, I've heard this phrase, but we're going from dollar in print to dimes in the web to pennies on mobile. Um, how how will this affect the shift affect you know players like Vox Media um, as like readership increase becomes increasingly mobile? I mean, how how you guys? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I'm hoping you know that I'm ho that hoping that that is um, you know the 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 dollars to penny or the dimes to pennies is hopefully a a um, temporal like kind of setup. You know, part of why that's the case is that marketers are not yet haven't yet figured out mobile advertising themselves. They don't even have mobile websites yet. You know, a lot of big publications are just starting to have mobile websites, and you know, usually it goes, you know, the the publications have to, and then the marketers will over time. And so, um, I think this, you know, this is going to be a very um, powerful way to market to people. And so, I do think the dollars will be there. And you know, you what, think it's going to dollars to mobile? Is do you think that will be the trend? I, yeah, I, I mean, I think let's put it this way: I think you'll be the economics of mobile advertising will be able to support great mobile content. Um, you know, you'll be able to make a business model out of it for sure. And you know, you're already seeing it with companies like. Flipboard and Zite and other kind of you know mobile first kind of entities that are you know, making big beautiful display ads. For our part, one of the things we did to get ahead of it was uh, embrace adaptive response, responsive design, um, so that you know whether you're on SB Nation or Polygon, the experience across different platforms, tablet, phone, desktop. It's a consistent experience that is optimized in its form and UI for whatever you're on, but is the same um, same experience. You know, fundamentally, you know, same photo imagery, just optimized for um, the platform. And so that way, you know, for both consumers who are engaging in our content and brands that are partnering with us, they don't have to think about like, oh, am I getting your audience on the phone? Am I getting your audience on the desktop? The truth is like. You know, those of us you know, who are, you know, work in front of a computer all day and then have our iPads when we get home and our mobile on the way to work or wherever, like, they want to target us. They don't, like, necessarily always care, like, what device we're on. So we try to make it as, as easy as possible for them just to say, all right, if you buy SB Nation, you're going to get the SB Nation audience wherever they are, if they're on a bus or if they're at work or if they're... Uh, you know, at home reading something longer. What kind of trends are you seeing on SB Nation in, in the perspective of mobile? I mean, you see like a lot of yeah. users. On yeah, I think, I, I think everyone is like seeing that growth. I think we're close to 40% 40 
mobile now, and you know that was up from maybe 25 a year ago. And you know, I think I've asked around on a lot of other publishers. I think we're pretty like consistent with everyone. We might be a little bit more mobile just because in sports in particular, um, it's you know it's a pretty mobile audience. You're watching a game, you want to get information or whatever. So uh, or a lot of it takes place on the weekends, but. But I think we're pretty consistent with everyone else. Okay, cool. Um, before I open up uh, Q&A to the audience, I want to talk about one last topic, and that's the DC startup ecosystem. Um, what are some of the benefits for Vox Media being here in DC versus New York or Silicon Valley? I mean, you've been here many, many decades. Yeah. So you're probably the best person I, to I, I love DC, and I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad that you all are here. And um, you know, I, I'm like, committed professionally and, and personally to um, trying to make this a better place for um, more startups to blossom. There's only so much that I can do, you know, like you know, trying to come and, and be supportive tonight, but other things as well. Um, but I think it's a great place. You know, as I said to kick off when you asked me about Philadelphia, I mean, DC has a lot of things going for it. It has um, you know, it's an international city. It's um, a city with a big entrenched industry with <laughs> that, you know, is a big customer base, namely the federal government uh, there. And, you know, and I realize we're, we're not all in those kinds of businesses, but it's important because it gives the city an economic foundation for sure, even if you're not selling directly into the federal government. Um, and then, you know, it's a, it, it, there are educational institutions um, that could provide great technology talent and you know there's a lot of things going for it it's a young city there are people always coming in um, from all sorts of different places so it has a lot of things going for it and you know it doesn't ha obviously have the same built-in ecosystem as Silicon Valley um, it doesn't have the same you know thing it's not as big as New York there's no denying that um, and so you know as we've grown we've established offices in other places too. We have a big office in New York. We have satellite offices in Chicago and San Francisco, and even a small office in Austin, Texas. Um, but our headquarters remain here, and we remain committed to it as ever. And you know, I'm I'm not moving anywhere. So like, there's always going to be a presence here for sure. Um, so what kind of so one last question? Um, uh, what kind of startups interest you? Tickle your fancy? Do you have sort of like, wow, that looks like an interesting startup I'd like to advise? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I am I, I'm one of those guys who gets interested by a lot of different ideas and you know diversity of ideas and, um, and but I'm also careful um, I, I'm you know I, I'm also care I, I love to you know give as much advice as I can I'm also careful about not like pretending I know it all and, and you know trying to give advice where I'm just another voice because I think as entrepreneurs we have a lot of different voices coming at us and you know, the key thing is to synthesize that and just make your own decision. Um, and then, you know, my time is pretty strapped to running a, running my own company. And so I, you know, but, it, you know, I'm happy to always, like, answer emails and, you know, and, um, you know, occasionally, uh, you know, do forms like this or, or grab a coffee or whatever. So any way I can help. But any interesting startup concepts that... Interesting. Probably not no? as, as interesting as the one in, in, in this audience. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, we'll have we'll have shout outs later. But okay. you have you have a, a airplane to catch. I do. Later. Yeah, I do. But okay, I have so a few we're minutes gonna, for questions. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna. So we have to be very uh, cognizant of your time. So we'll open up for questions. Um, we'll 
Okay, we'll, we'll just start off right now. So let's just go number one here. Thank you. Uh, so you mentioned that E3 gave Polygon a nice boost. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you leverage events for your other verticals or if you have like a general sort of approach or relationship with particular events. And also how you're going to do that with creative or if you've considered that at all. All good questions. You know, events are, um, are great marketing vehicles, uh, you know, and, you know, I think it's a very insightful question because, like, we, we use events. We, we probably, we invest a lot in them. And just for instance, like, we sent a whole crew of reporters, videographers to E3 and to the same week was Apple's WWDC where they announced all their new products. And we had crews on both locations. We had studio in New York that was, you know, we, we treat those events like ESPN would treat the Super Bowl or like CNN would treat a political campaign. Um, you know, for us, it, that's, that's a place to make our mark. And so you're absolutely right. Like it's not only editorial coverage and we find sponsors so we can make some money too, but they're marketing events for us. And the way I look at it is, you know, our, our traffic for a day like that might double or triple or maybe more. And if we're doing a good job, all we have to do is keep like 5% of that new audience that finds us for a big event day. They come to us and they're like, wow, I, you know, I was only interested in the you know, E3 coverage, but I'm gonna stay because I really like what these guys are doing and that builds upon itself. And you, know, you had another good question about Vox Creative and you know, that's another service that we can offer to marketers. Um, you know, they often have, you, know, you might be a product company that isn't Google or isn't Apple and might not have as much hoopla and fanfare around your launch event, but we can help cover it and help kind of, you know, make it into a bigger deal. And then, you know, you can spend some advertising dollars on our site and elsewhere to help make consumers more aware of it. Okay, so if I wanted to sell more capital uh, Washington Caps tickets, I'll have him ask you directly. <laughs> hey, I was the guy. Uh, oh, there you are. Right in. Thanks for the couple of uh, promotions you gave me with the CMO title. But uh, um, so, you know, talking about we have something in common, we both worked for TED in the past. Um, you said you talked about you made a decision with, uh, with SB Nation whether you can be a sports company or a media company. And I think TED's kind of going through that right now. He has a sports team, but he really wants to grow it into the media company. What do you think of that uh, strategy, and what do you think of the, some of the hurdles that he might Face going down that direction. I think he's doing just fine. <laughs> I, um, you know, Ted's a sports owner. I see another sports owner in the back there. Um, hey, Mark. Um, the, um, uh, you know, sports teams are such a valuable asset um, in this day and age. I see it from uh, from my vantage point as a media company that um, you know, live sports TV is the ultimate reality programming, and it's something that you know, isn't really great on a DVR and isn't, uh, um, you know, you have to watch it. And it brings us all together. Um, and it's a community experience as a result. So I think Ted's going to have a lot of options. You know, it already is a big media asset. And, you know, it's, they partner with Comcast. Um, I know that contract's probably going to be up at some point, And then, you know, he'll be able to decide whether he wants to create his own network or partner with them or someone else to do something big. But, you know, one way or another, the, the rights owners are really in the catsbird seats, I think, when they want to, uh, you know, create something. So I, I think it already is a media company, and it's probably just going to be a bigger media company. 
Uh, Jim, I wanted to follow up on Brian's question about um, New York versus Washington. And in terms of access to talent, which skill sets have you found to be the most difficult to source in this market, either, either skill sets or, or functions? And then also in terms of access to money, how would you characterize the VC community here versus New York and San Francisco, and just in terms of how they think? So in terms of access to talent, it depends what kind of talent you need. We hire both journalistic talent, that's a little bit easier to find, and then technical talent, that's a little bit harder to find. But what I'd say about the technology talent, while it's harder to find, it's easier to retain. So you kind of, you know, you have to work a little harder to recruit and maybe even relocate. But once people are here, they love the, the lifestyle here, they love the um, being part of the DC community. And, um, you know, we, you know, we, we tend to retain people once they're here because, you know, hopefully they love our company, but they also love being in the DC area. Um, so that, I think that's, you know, you can look at that as, you know, a hard thing, but also a good thing too. Um, and your other question was about VCs. You know, I'll, I'll be direct and say, I don't think there's enough VC involvement in DC area companies. I think programs like this hopefully will change that. Um, there are some great VCs in the, in the neighborhood, um, but they make their investments across the country and, um, and not just in this area, although I think they try to look at this area. I know Ted and Steve through Revolution are committed to this area and um, there are other VCs that you know, make investments here. We took our first round of capital from Silicon Valley though, from um, Excel Partners, took our second round from Comcast Ventures, which was in Philadelphia, and then we took our third round from another VC on the West Coast, Coastal Ventures. And so I, you know, while I'd like to see DC venture capitalists make more investments here, if they're not investing, then other people will, and, and that's great, and that's a good thing for everyone, and you'll create more sense of uh, urgency here. I, I, I got a question on uh, knowledge management. You've described your different skill sets, your environment, as well as uh, your products. And knowledge management, it's been around since quite some time, but it's picked up pace in the last 10 years. What can you tell me about that? Knowledge management? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it depends on me. But I, uh, I may, you know, if. Uh, uh, this might not be answering your question, so just let me know. But you know, the way we think about things are like, isn't feedback loops, and um, we have, you know, really we, I think part of the successes of the company is how tight can you make those feedback loops, and how iterative can you be in order to take advantage of the knowledge that you've learned from them, um, and then apply it elsewhere. And so, you know, we we set up our company in a very agile environment, not just in terms of like technology development, which is certainly, you know, run through an agile process, but even our editorial processes, even our advertising processes, you know, everything we're trying to make agile, which is to say, um, launch quickly, have feedback and data collection and process and to analyze the data, use that data to bring it back to the product cycle and, and do that, you know, in, you know, two week cycles as much as you possibly can. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's hard to generalize because, you know, it depends what your product is. You know, if you're building like a jetliner, you know, you can't, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of thing. But, um, but for web development, um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I don't want to generalize because there are different products called for different things. But I think for most 
for most products, for, you know, for most web development, I think, you know, Agile is the way to go. Okay, two more questions. Okay, I have a question about content. So I'm, I'm, I have my own media situation, and oh, it's not really getting. Situation. It's a situation because <laughs> it's been there for a while, but it's not getting any comments, even though we have a lot of traffic. So I'm wondering if maybe one of the reasons is that I'm seeing that a lot of different blogs, like TechDirt or different concepts, they're using a lot of opinionated news instead of investigative stories. So are you seeing a trend with engagement in terms of spinning the content so it's more or less someone else's opinion and giving you the news that way? I th if you're looking for engagement on a community level, you know, that, that's an that's all, you, you, you just have to, it, it doesn't matter so much, I don't think, whether it's breaking news or commentary, you just have to be willing to um, encourage it and engage with it, uh, engage with your audience, you know, talk to your audience, ask them questions, respond to the questions, uh, respond to the answers that they get, you know, really make an effort. I, I you know, it's, it's been described as, um, you know, think of it as a dinner party or a cocktail party, and like, you know, just because you're like, Serving great drinks or great food, which is your content, um, doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna like have a lot of cool people over and you're gonna have a great, amazing conversation. You have to be a great host at the party, and you have to, you know, encourage people to bring their dishes and talk about their things and listen, you know, to their boring stories if they have boring stories, and like pretend that you're interested when they tell you a boring story, and like you know, it's all part of being a gracious host. Um, and I think that's probably the way to build community. You definitely have to serve great content, great dishes, but the, you know, that could take different forms. Um, and it's more about like getting out there, making sure that you have broad invitations to your parties through Twitter and through Facebook. Using the party analogy here, by the way, it's not a literal party um, unless you're having a meetup. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, you have to work hard at building that community and, you know, being there day in, day out um, and grow it over time. But you can't just post something and expect people to talk about it. Sir, if you wouldn't mind, could you talk about one or two of your mistakes and uh, what you learned from them? Sure. Um, um, there's, there's, there's a lot, and I, I do have to catch a plane. Um, <laughs> but um, the, um, you know, one that jumped to mind is, um, you know, whenever we, like, once we got a little bigger, we tried to, like, maybe jump into a side business, maybe, and a little too quickly, not given enough focus. I'll give you an example. Um, with SB Nation, we saw the daily deal trend growing, and you know, this was three years ago. And I think, like everyone else, we're like, oh, we have sports fans. Let's have daily deals for sports fans. And we started this thing called Team Pick, and we actually, you know, got a little bit of traction with it, just enough to be dangerous. Um, but you know, we kind of quickly came to the realization, like, in order to focus on that business, which is a hard business, just ask Living Social and Groupon, like, you know, you have to be in that business. You have to be living, breathing it every day. It can't just be a side thing for you. And I think that goes for a lot of different things. Like, you know, the mistakes that we've made have been when we try to go off and do, like, a side thing that we're not, that isn't in our core of who we are, that, you know, that's just like an experiment that we're not wholly committed to. Because you know, it's very rare something like that will succeed. Like, you know, you got, you, if you got to, if you're going to do something, you got to commit to it. Um, and if it's just like a, a side project that you have no hope in committing to, then you're probably not going to be successful. 
And, you know, we've certainly fell into that trap a few times, I think. Startup Grind is supported by Soylent, the galaxy's easiest meal. Soylent is a nutritionally complete, ready-to-drink meal in a bottle. A simple solution to the substantial amount of time and money most people spend maintaining healthy diets. The latest formula, Soylent 2.0, offers a pleasantly subtle flavor, a smooth texture, and a lasting fullness. Soylent began as a crowd-funded startup. After reaching fundraising goals within just two hours of the campaign's launch, Soylent attracted the attention of venture capitalists, allowing the company to scale to the multi-million dollar market leader it is today. Having been there themselves, Soylent supports the entrepreneurial spirit in everyone. Learn more and subscribe at Soylent.com. Use the promo code StartupGrind for 10% off your first subscription. That's Soylent.com, promo code StartupGrind.